0: We're going to begin tonight with the Olivet Discourse. Olivet Discourse is Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25. Right? Any guesses as to why it's called the Olivet Discourse? Because it was given on the Mount of Olives. And it's interesting, that's the spot that Jesus is going to return to. So just kind of keep that in mind as we're talking about these things. You know, they're going to be at the spot that Jesus is coming back to as they discuss. As Jesus teaches them. So, as we begin with the Olivet discourse, uh, people are asking, "All right, how many weeks is this going to be?" Not as long as Daniel. Uh, uh, my my hopes are that we should be able to get through this by the end of February. If not, we may roll over into a week into uh, March. Right. So, we want to begin with the setting, and the first part of this is going to be a little bit of a review from Sunday morning as well to set the stage for this discourse that Jesus gives. So the setting is, need to remember, Israel has now rejected their Messiah. Uh, Back in chapter 23, there are the seven woes announced upon them. So let's go go in your Bibles back to chapter 23. We want to look beginning at verse 1. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. Now, uh, let that sink in for just a second. Why does Jesus tell them to observe the words that they tell you? Well, yeah, they should be teaching the law. So if they're teaching the Word of God, we observe what the Word of God has to to say. Even people who aren't walking with the Lord or serving the Lord, if when they're being consistent to what the Word of God says, we still follow the Word of God. We don't dismiss the Word of God because it's coming from a, a bad source. So for instance, we sometimes wonder, or maybe you wonder, How is it that God, that that people get saved sometimes under false teachers? Or in churches that are not teaching the word of God, how do they get saved there? Well, God has promised that his word will not return to him void. So his word is always going to accomplish its purpose. Faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing. And hearing by what? By the word of God. So God's word is going to to work and accomplish its purpose. So let's never limit God on what he's able to do. We we know Jesus, as we go through this passage, is certainly not endorsing the Pharisees and anything that they are doing. But he's also cautioning people, be sure in your reaction to someone's bad behavior that you don't overreact and dismiss the word of God. It says, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Where they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. We've talked about that. Phylacteries were where they would put the word of God. Because the Old Testament tells us we're to keep the word of God before our eyes. So they would take, put it right on their forehead. We're to think and meditate on the word of God. So you put it right on your forehead. And they would tie bands around their head. And they would have a piece of the scripture that they, they would put there. But they're going to make sure their pieces are what? So big, everybody really sees, they want to be noticed in everything they're doing, and their fringes long. Uh, the fringes would be they would sew uh, blue fringes on their garments, and that was to be a reminder of the word and the commandments of God. Now, we're being told they would have long fringes on their things. Once again, for what purpose? To be noticed. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. They're not like the Baptists that want to sit in the back row. They want the best seats in the synagogue. You know, they want to be up front where everybody's going to notice that they're there and not so they can have a quick exit at the end of the the service and get to the restaurants before anybody else or that says, and greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, Jesus jumps in here and announces these seven woes upon these false religious leaders, these Pharisees, who do not follow him. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Remember we talked about a hypocrite is an actor. That's where the word comes from. It's from the, like the, the Greek stage. Uh, in uh, the, the early days of drama, people would be on the stage and they would wear different masks. And they would wear the mask of the character they were playing. And sometimes they would wear more than one mask. They, so they'd play more than one Character. So they're pretending to be this person, and then they're pretending to be that person. That's, that's the root word here that's used for hypocrites. That's where it comes from. So woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. Now, understand what he's saying to the Pharisees there. They think that they are going into the kingdom, into heaven. That's what they think for themselves. But Jesus says to them, you're not going in. And you actually keep, rather than promoting to get others there, you actually keep others from going in. Now, if you're reading your Bible now, you may notice something. This question came up Sunday morning, and someone asked me be, before we started, so what is the question? Verse 14, eight rows, but Where is verse 14? You notice it's verse 13, and then it goes to 15. Now, how many of you have a Bible that verse 14 is in? Okay. So some of you have translations that have verse 14 in it. Uh, and so, uh, Faith shared with me, her study Bible says, these are the eight woes upon the Pharisees. Because verse 14 also has a woe upon the Pharisees. I think down in the margin of my Bible, it says, verse 14 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. But that's not in a number of our translations. not in the ESV that we are using. Now, Is this the only place in our Bibles where there are different, where there's a different verse missing? Okay, in Mark, uh, you'll you'll find uh, much of the whole last chapter is omitted there. Uh, The story in John of the woman caught in adultery, you'll find the same thing is there. Why is that? different manuscripts, and so what we, we have is the older, more, and see, let me say, this is more of a, this is really technical to get into, but there is a debate over the manuscripts that should be used, and there are, there are really two major, uh, groups of manuscripts, primarily, two major groups. Uh, And so one set of manuscripts, they would say, has uh, a lot of manuscripts about them. Another set of manuscripts don't have as many, but appear to be older than the others. So the question is, which set of manuscripts are we going to use? And I'm really simplified. There's much more to this debate than that. Really, for us to know, the real debate over the King James Version only, uh, you may know churches that they accept only the King James Version and Noah. It's really a manuscript debate. It's not really a translation debate. It's over which set of manuscripts are we going to use. So the the translators of the ESV have chosen, based as they weighed out the evidence, to say the older and, in their opinion, the best manuscripts do not include verse 14. Now, this takes nothing away from the Word of God, this takes nothing away from the authority of the word of God. It's just a question, did along the way some scribe who was writing put that there or put it in the margin, uh, they've made the decision that shouldn't belong there. But it doesn't undermine the authority of the Bible Anyway, all it's going to change is whether you have eight woes or seven woes that are here. Does that make sense to you? Other questions? Steve. Isn't it true that these verses that are in or not don't affect major <coughs> theological doctrine? They do, not, they do not affect any major theological doctrine whatsoever. Also, here, here's what I think many times. This is just kind of my opinion as well. That sometimes some of these verses, in particular, take the story of the woman caught in adultery. Is it possible that that occurred, but it just wasn't a part of John's writing? Is it possible that at some time, because these sermons of Jesus, these things that he says, sometimes he would say them more than once and in different settings and different places, is it possible he said this and somebody else added it in later? My Bible says it's in Mark. <laughs> okay. Verse. Okay, so, so the verse exactly can be over in Mark, and a scribe thought, well, it really sounds like it belongs with this other set of woes, and put it in. So not no major doctrine is ever affected by these things. No major teaching of the church is affected by these things. And even in the disputed passages, we can look at them and there's adequate explanation for each of them. So I don't want this to undermine you know, your uh, belief in the Word of God, your, your, your thoughts that the Word of God can be counted upon. Uh, it can be. It's just a question whether this verse belongs in this particular passage, okay? So if you've got verse 14 in your Bible, you can put down where I've got the seven woes, the eight woes uh, that are here, Uh, but we're going to move forward with the, the seven, right? Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. I can just imagine how those words went over. Right? Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. See how they're just trying, Jesus is seeing how they play games. With what they believe, you bind fools for which is greater, the gold of the temple that has for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. you bind men for which is greater the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of thought. Can you think about, think about this? Tiding of their spices. Ladies, I, I said Sunday. You know how small spices are. Can you imagine separating them into, here's nine tenths, here's, here's a tenth. But, and though they would do that, they neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. But do you see how we can become focused on the wrong things? And we can get so focused on outward things that we forget the inward things that are most important. Jesus says, these ought to have been done without neglecting the others. You blind guide straining out out a gnat and swallowing a camel. That's a quite a word picture there, isn't it? Right. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Once again, what a, what a picture, a word picture. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Is that true? What did Jesus tell the Pharisees? Wouldn't he at times ask them? Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Which ones didn't you put to death? All of them. And they're just like their fathers. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? You know, I'm I'm reading these words, and I'm thinking about uh, people in our culture who have this image of a politically correct Jesus. They could never imagine him saying this to a group of people. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, Now he's speaking of the future here. He's going to send them to them. The disciples are going to go to them. And you're going to kill them and crucify them. And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the righteous blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. What is Jerusalem supposed to be? City of peace. What else is it supposed to be? The sanctuary? The sanctuary. What's in Jerusalem? What does the temple represent? The presence, the presence of God? The purpose of the temple. The temple had the, the, the inward court, but it also had an, an outside court. Who was the outside court for? The court of the Gentiles. What's the purpose of the court of the Gentiles? To become for what purpose? (coughs) Right. To come and to worship God. Remember on Sunday morning we were talking about the Abrahamic Covenant. Who's to be blessed through the Abrahamic Covenant? All people. Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations. In the Old Testament, the Jewish nation Was to walk so closely with God that the nations would see the blessings that God poured down upon the Jews and be drawn to their God. But see how far they've come from that. Jesus, twice in his ministry, had to do what? Clean out the temple. You know what the portion of the temple was he was cleaning out? The court of the Gentiles. Because they had turned it into a place, a marketplace. Because do the Jews really care if the Gentiles come to God? No, no. They're not interested in the Gentiles coming to God. Matter of fact, they would be pretty happy if all the Gentiles just went to hell. That's, That's their... Attitude toward them. So they've turned the Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles, into a place of merchandise where they were actually cheating the people of God who were coming to worship God. So, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Christ's heart is broken. You kill the prophets and, and stones those who are sent to it. How oft I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Then comes the announcement of judgment. See, your house is left to you desolate. And the, the house left to them desolate, so primary uh, uh is pointing primarily to the temple. That The temple is going to be desolated. For I tell you, and then we talked about Sunday, the promise that follows, you will not see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right. So we're at that point, you know, we're, we're in Passion Week, Passion week begins with Jesus doing what? Entering into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He's recognized by the people, by the crowds that are there. By Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But that's not how the religious leaders receive him, is it? And it's not by the end of the week, people will be crying for him to be crucified. Crucified. So they have rejected their Messiah. So now we pick up with chapter 24. So look at the first two verses. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, the disciples are showing Jesus what? The beautiful temple. It's thought that at this point in time, the temple was still under renovation by Herod. And so the disciples are pointing out to him how beautiful. All, I just to me that's just kind of humorous, that they are the disciples are all impressed with the temple and the beauty of the temple. And so they are they are showing it to him. But he says to them, "You see all these, do you not?" Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is predicting the temple's destruction. All right, let's look over, turn to Mark chapter 13. There are actually three passages that deal with the Olivet Discourse in in different degrees. We have Matthew chapter 24, We have Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And he came out of the temple, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And and Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then over in Luke chapter 21. It says, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come then when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. All right, so what is Jesus telling them is going to happen? The temple's going to be torn down. All right, the temple is going to be destroyed. That there's not going to be one stone left upon another stone. Now, Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 tells us, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, therefore that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now, Mark chapter 13, verse 3 tells us that the disciples who came to him privately were Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And this is kind of consistent with Jesus' teaching here at the end of his ministry as the Jewish nation has rejected him, Jesus gets to the point that he tells them he will no longer speak to them except in in parables. Why does he say he'll only speak to them in parables? Because the ones who wanted to follow him will understand, and the others will be confused. Also keep in mind that In that pattern, there are times that Jesus would tell a parable, and then later with his disciples, what would he do? He would explain it to them. So it's sort of like Jesus is making the statement that is heard, and now these disciples are coming to him privately and and saying, uh, we need to understand. Now they ask a question of him, and actually there are either two or three questions. We're gonna talk about that right now. They wanna know when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? So as, as people have looked at these questions, Some have said, we have three separate questions here. When will these things be? The things that will be is what? The temple being destroyed. When will these things be that there will not be left one stone upon another? They also want to know, what will be the sign of your coming, and what will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, first of all, for the disciples, we need to understand that they think all of this is happening at the same time. So for them, these three things are all connected. That the temple is going to be destroyed, that Jesus is coming, and that what will be the sign of the end of the age. We need to understand in the Jewish mind, when they thought about eschatology, they believed in two ages. The current age and the age to come. The current age related to the time leading up to Messiah coming. The coming age was after Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom. Jewish eschatology, two ages, which would be in their minds as they're thinking, they are in the current age. And when Jesus for those who would understand him to be messiah sets up his kingdom and comes that's when all these things are going to happen so in as the question is worded in the greek with the conjunctions that are there the second and third question are connected to one another so that would indicate in their question that these two, and in the answer that we're going to see to this, that the second part of the question, which would have two parts to it, are connected. The first question, when will these things be, is referring to the destruction of the temple when one stone will not be left upon another. Do you follow that with me? In their minds, disciples' minds, they're going to think these all three are connected. But there are two, actually, two different questions because number two and number three are connected to one another. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age are the same question. So it's a, there appear to be three questions here, but the last two are connected to one another. Pastor Butch, did they believe that Jesus was the Messiah when they asked these questions? Who knows, Sue? Because, I mean, it's like... <laughs> what, what are they expecting of a Messiah? A kingdom. A, kingdom. A, kingdom. a kingdom. Now, what has happened earlier in the week? Uh, do you think there were some who thought he was going to set up his kingdom then? I don't think Sue, so. Even at this point in time, they're going to understand they understand that the cross is going to happen. They think at some point he's he's going to become the conquering king. Now, and, and let's just let's just think about this a little bit. Put yourself in the place of the disciples for a minute. So for, you know, we sometimes think they're dense and they don't get it. But we're just as dense as they were. But what have they seen Jesus do? All right, let's talk about some of those miracles. What's he done? All right, he's raised the dead. Wouldn't, you, wouldn't you, you think he might have uh, the ability to raise an army even from the dead? What, what else has he done? All right, he's been able to take just, you know, a small lunch and feed 5,000 people. Uh, let me ask you that. If we had politicians today that could do that, would you vote for him? <laughs> hmm. huh? Huh? <laughs> so if if you think through the supernatural signs that they have seen and it it is hard it's really hard to know what all's going through the minds of the the you know the disciples at this point in time. It it's you know we, we see from the response from the crucifixion, even though Jesus has told them the whole time coming to Jerusalem, he was going there to what? To die. To die. He told them that over and over again. But they didn't get it. They didn't get it. Yes. Yes. Right. Because that's what they were most interested in, and then their question to him after 40 days of instruction is, "Is now the time for the kingdom to come?" Yeah. So they under see here's what's here, here. here's what we take away from that. First of all, it's on on the one side it's there is going to be a kingdom because Jesus doesn't say to disciples, "You've missed everything here." To to Chris's point, they are expecting, now he's about to ascend to heaven. They're not expecting him to go to heaven. What are they expecting? He spent 40 days after his resurrection. Telling them about the kingdom that is coming, and I have to believe within that he has also been telling them, you know, over and and over again that there's lots of things going to happen before that occurs. I mean, we know there to be witnesses of him. You know, they kind of missed all of that as as well, but they're expecting the kingdom to come right then, and so. And, with, and even post-resurrection, even more so, you'd have to believe. You know, if they, if they remembered his, his words that he could have called 10,000 legions of angels to come and rescue him, if that what was wanted, but they don't get it, and, and they're still kind of dense here. So they're expecting all of this still. I, I believe they're expecting all of this still to happen. And they're trying to figure this out. So, you know, when will this be? And, and what's the sign that we can see of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, so in the minds of the disciples, they would expect all things to happen at the same time. Uh, I I just wonder what's going through their minds at this point, how how they're accounting for the destruction of the temple. Because the temple represented the presence of God. So, the, the disciples would be voicing the popular beliefs of the time. Jewish eschatology recognized two ages, The first was the present age, and the second was the age to come. In the present age, they are waiting for Messiah, and in the age to come, all Israel's covenants will be fulfilled. So in the the age to come, what they're looking at and they're thinking about is the covenant that's made with David, that someone will sit upon his throne and will rule and reign forever. Even though the disciples merged these events, Christ did not merge these events into a single time period. In fact, Matthew and Mark do not deal with the destruction of Jerusalem in their accounts of the Olivet Discourse. Let's pause there for just a second. We're going to look at the, the first question, when will these things be? Matthew and Mark, for whatever reason skip over the first question and in their accounts record the words of Jesus that relate to the second question. Do you think maybe Matthew and Mark were written before it happened? It happened in 70 A.D. Yeah, it, it happened in 70 A.D. Uh, I'm just wondering before be, That's something I'd have to check. I think all of them were written before 70 A.D. That all three of the gospel accounts would have been written 70 A.D. So I think most of the New Testament, maybe with the exception of uh, Revelation and the book of of Hebrews, would have been written. I'll double check into that one do that. But Matthew and Mark do not deal with the destruction of Jerusalem. Their focus is on the future days of the tribulation leading up to Christ's return. Luke's account is the only one that contains the answer to the first question. But Luke also deals with the future days of the tribulation and Christ's return as well. So Luke deals with both. But only, not as in in depth that Matthew does. Matter of fact, Mark is not as in its depth as Matthew does. For whatever reason, Matthew and Mark's entire focus is on the last question and speaks of the sign of your coming and the end of the age. (coughs) The first question is clearly in reference to the destruction of the temple, which occurred in 70 A.D., So let's go over to Luke chapter 19, verses 42 to 44. Luke chapter 19. It says, let's pick it up with verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on the day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Once again, we're talking about the judgment coming upon the nation of Israel. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Uh, We learn a number of things from this prophecy. First, your enemies undoubtedly refers to the Romans who destroyed the city in 70 AD. Second, we'll throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side is a clear description of the Roman siege used to defeat Jerusalem. Third, the Roman siege resulted in the total destruction of the city and of life within the city. Usually in a wartime situation, if anyone is spared, it will be children. But even most of them were killed. Fourth, the very words of Christ from Matthew 24-2 were used by him earlier in this passage when he said, there will not be left there one stone upon another. Fifth, the reason for the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans will be because you did not know the time of your visitation. So why is the judgment coming? Because they have refused, they did not recognize that the Messiah had come. He had come, he had visited them, and they refused to recognize him. Now, as we look at this, there are eight things that were predicted that all happened in 70 A.D. Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. Then recognize that her desolation is at hand. They're told to flee to the mountains. The admonition to flee would indicate that Jerusalem would be destroyed. If the Jews were to defeat the Romans, then the safe place would be to be inside the wall city. Do you see that? If Jerusalem was going to be able to defeat the Romans, you would want to be, what, inside the city. But Jesus is telling them, the city's going to be destroyed, so you want to what? Get out. And this is kind of, and we're going to see this later on too, this is kind of a prefigure of what will happen in the tribulation period as well. Remember, as we were, for those of you that were here during Daniel, sometimes we have something that occurs that prefigures something that's going to happen later. I think we have a little bit of that that's going on now. In the future, we're going to see when Antichrist turns on uh, Jerusalem, that they need to get out of there and that Israel will, a number of them will get out of the city and will run for their lives because they know that the time of destruction is coming. Right, These are days of vengeance. So it, there is vengeance coming upon the nation of Israel. Now, let's be careful here from the standpoint. Some commentators, when they look at this and they see that it's the days of vengeance, they try to take this passage and put it also over into the tribulation period. Because it says it's a time of vengeance. But both are a time of vengeance. Uh, why is why is the temple being destroyed? Why is Jerusalem being destroyed? Because there was an uprising, and Hyberius, a man, to settle it down, and accidentally shot arrows into the side <coughs> in the of the fire, burned it down. But even on top of that, it's still the judgment of God. It is the judgment of God is the reason this is happening. Because they didn't recognize the time of their visitation, they rejected their Messiah. There will be great distress upon the land. There will be wrath to this people, to Israel. Uh, the, The Romans had no love lost for the Jewish people. Uh, they found the Jewish people to be a very rebellious lot. And uh, everybody, all the Romans who served uh, in Israel found it not to be the greatest assignment to have to try to keep these people under wraps. Israel will fall by the edge of the sword. Israel be, will be led captive into all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Let's look at that over in Luke uh, chapter 21. In 19, we're seeing the prediction that is going to happen. And in Luke chapter 21... And while some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left there one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. And he he goes on to talk about, that's not the passage I'm looking for here. Verse 20. Thank you. Okay, yes, I'm sorry. Verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Now, one of the things that we will point out later, but you just kind of note here, the, the reason we know this relates to the destruction of the city by the Romans as opposed to in the end times will be differences between what is said here and what happens with the Antichrist. You will see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that his desolation is come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the day of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for the women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against the people. They shall fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the end of the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. I want to read for you an account from... that Arnold Frutenbaum has in his uh, book, The Footsteps of the Messiah. He says, This prophecy was fulfilled in a very marvelous way. In the year A.D. 66, the first Jewish revolt broke out against the Romans. When the revolt first began, the Roman general in the land, Cestus Gallus, came with his armies from Caesarea and surrounded Jerusalem. Remember, the prediction was that what? The city would be what? Surrounded. The surrounding of the city marked the sign that Jesus had promised. And the Jewish believers knew that Jerusalem would soon be destroyed. Jesus had commanded the Jewish believers to desert the city when they saw this happening. However, it was impossible to do so while the Romans were surrounding the city. Then Cestus Gallus noticed that his supply lines were not secure. He did not have enough supplies to maintain an extended siege. So he lifted the siege of Jerusalem in order to go back to Caesarea. On the way, he was attacked by Jewish forces and killed. Temporarily, the city was no longer surrounded by the armies, so every single Jewish believer was able to leave Jerusalem. They crossed the Jordan River and set up a new community of Jewish believers in the town of Pella in the Transjordan. They were joined by Jewish believers from Judea, Galilee, and the Golan. There they waited for the prophecy of Jesus to be fulfilled. In the year AD 68, a new Roman general by the name of Vespasian and his son Titus again besieged the city in the year 70 AD. The city and the temple were destroyed. Altogether, 1,100,000 Jews were killed in this final onslaught. But not one Jewish believer died because they obeyed the words of their messiah. Since that time, Jerusalem has indeed been trodden down of the Gentiles and continues to be so to this present day. Jerusalem will not be free of the Gentile nations trotting upon her until the Messiah returns. So I wanted you to see how literally that warning and what Jesus said was going to happen actually happened and it provided the way for them to get out of the city. So when will these things be? That refers to the destruction of the temple, where Jesus said one stone would not be left upon another. And that literally happened. You know, as Wayne was talking about, fire broke out in the temple, and be, because of that, the temple was so ornate and stuff, uh, or ornate, and even uh, one report had that they had even used gold to, to when they settled the stones one upon another to use as kind of a leveling device because gold is uh, soft. And that as the fire was going on, it began to melt the gold, and the gold began running out in between the stones, and that's why they would they broke the stones apart so that they were not left one on another, so that they could get the Roman soldiers could get the gold out of there. So the Olivet discourse begins with the two questions being asked. Tonight, we've looked at the first of those questions. When shall these things be? When would it happen that was fulfilled in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple? Now, what will be the sign of your coming? And the sign of the end of the age is much more detailed and a much longer answer. And that's what we will dive into next week. All right, questions tonight. Sue. Well, now let's, right, those are two separate things. Let me talk about and why. And when we talk about the return of the Lord, so when we're talking about what is the sign of your coming, we are not talking about the rapture. We are talking about Christ's return to the earth to set up his kingdom. So, the rapture where Christ comes back for his church is imminent. That means it can happen at any time, at any moment, and there are no signs of the rapture. Zero signs of the rapture. That's what the Thessalonians, in their view, they thought the rapture had occurred because they got a letter that seemed to be written by Paul. Someone wrote a letter to them claiming to be Paul and said the rapture occurred and you guys all got left behind here. So, uh, now, and they're looking, if we uh, look to, to Paul's letter to them as well, some of the Thessalonians had quit working because they thought the rapture was gonna come, and you know they could just wait on that, let everybody else support them until the, the rapture occurred, and so Paul dealt with that as well. But when we're talking about the second coming, the sign of his coming to the earth, the sign of the end of the age, we're talking about Christ return to the earth to set up his kingdom, not the rapture of the church. Yeah, that's true. And we, we can look later at a comparison between the rapture and the return of, of Christ. There are different things. In the rapture, we're caught up to meet him in the air. In his return to the earth, he comes down to the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is actually going to split in two. That's what we're talking about here. I think that's kind of the significance. Where are they when they're discussing these things? On the Mount of Oz. That wouldn't be lost on the disciples. The prophecy from Zechariah. Okay. Other questions? So when the temple was destroyed, and you said there were 110,000 Jewish people killed in the Jewish and there were some... A million. Over a million. Oh, yeah, no, I'm sorry. No, That's Okay. back, the, siege, the Romans, Yes. And the Jewish got out. But why didn't they all leave? They just, they didn't observe the uh, prophecy? <coughs> well, who had the prophecy? The Jews. Just the disciples. Oh, just, just the, the believers. Oh, okay. The believers in Jesus. Yeah, the believers in Jesus. So those who were. We're followers of Christ. This, it, and don't you believe that when the city got surrounded by the Romans, they're going to remember these words that Jesus had said, and they're going to spread these words? We were warned to get out of the city. And so they did exit the city. While the other Jews, first of all, they didn't believe the words of Jesus anyway. They wouldn't have, they didn't believe his words when he was here. They certainly weren't going to believe them after he was gone. Now, I I, I have to believe there were probably a few Jewish people when they see this many people exiting the city that they, they may have left too. But there was no broad exodus of the city except for the believers in Christ. And the destruction that happened there, yeah, there were, you know, the city is sieged and then the city is destroyed. And as Jesus predicted, typically in warfare, they would kind of spare the children, but they didn't this time. They killed them all. But that's why only it would be the believers that would exit the city and get out of there when that siege was temporarily uh, stopped. So the disciples, most of them were still alive during that time? Yes, yes. Yeah, because we're talking up to, to 70 A.D. The believe there was you know, there were a large number of believers in Jerusalem. Because remember, the church was born there, the day of uh, Pentecost is over at that point in time. So in 70 AD, there would be a lot of believers that would be in the city of Jerusalem. And that's why they would get out. Other that's a good question. Okay, then this is a good stopping place for us tonight, and next time we'll pick up with the, the second question. What will be the sign of your coming, and what will be the sign of the end of the age? And we'll be working primarily through the gospel of Matthew, because he has the most detailed account there. Will this be also on the website, like Daniel was? Yes. I, did we get it recorded tonight? All right, we're good. It should be recorded, yes. Okay, the, that was always a question I had. You know, you got the wailing wall there. Why, how, how come the wailing wall is still there? Uh, and... What was explained to me is the part, the, the wailing wall, which was the outer part of the wall. There were two different terms that were used, and the word that Jesus used referred to the temple proper and not to the, that part of the structure. That's why the wailing wall was not torn down. Yeah, I was embarrassed when I was there because I was one with the apartment. With the What? Oh, okay. <laughs> I missed the joke there. Okay, I got it now. <laughs> uh, not this spring, and <laughs> and any. Uh, probably after after this, I'm going to take a break. I don't know what will uh, do for certain in the fall, but my plan would be next fall to pick up on something else. What we'll do. I'm not sure. I'm not even going to, I'm not going to do just prophecy forever on, (laughs) on Wednesday, uh, nights though that some people would like for me to do that. The answer is no. Uh, we're going to do other things as well. Okay. All right. Let me close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to uh, just marvel at the accuracy of your word. And, Lord, you know what's going to happen, so why wouldn't it be accurate, Lord? And, and help us, Lord, that this might cause us to be better servants of yours, and help us to put our confidence more and more in you and in what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.